everybody. Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. This is episode 14. Today, well, we might get a little political, we might get a little controversial because we're talking tariffs and we're talking dun 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 global warming or deforestation or ecological lumber related stuff. Should be interesting, maybe a little controversial, but heck, why not? First, I do want to say thank you to my new patrons. They sponsored the show over at patreon.com slash lumber update. Thank you to Brian, John, Crow Hollow Woodworks, and to Sydney. Thank you, everybody. We are getting very close to our first milestone goal. YouTube channel is coming. God help us all. So anyway, I wanted to start this week with some feedback. And last episode, uh, we kind of focused on plywood. And Jay wrote in, actually Jay's got a couple of points, both on, on plywood, but then also on, on uh, Shishugi Bond. But first and foremost, he said, in your plywood episode, what I see as a big difference that you didn't mention between Baltic birch and apple ply, and he puts both of those in quotes, and, and any of the like form factor is that five foot by five foot versus the four by eight sheet size. This has ramifications if you need more than five feet and never need the uh, extra foot for efficiency's sake. This is a good point, Jay. There are um, manufacturers that are making non four by eight, five foot wide, uh, five by five, but this is actually becoming more and more common. So I don't really draw a distinction here between any of the manufacturers. You will find um, the brand Baltic Birch, you'll find Apple Ply, you'll find all kinds of stuff made by States Industries that is in a variety of sizes. You can get 12 foot long plywood for that matter. As with everything with plywood, it comes down to how much do you need? You're not going to be able to get a manufacturer to make a single sheet of five by 12 foot um, unless they already have a run, you know, a line up and running producing that. And you can take a sheet off that existing manufacturing line. They're not going to set up a new line and run and press all that stuff for just a couple of sheets. But if you're buying a truckload, they can do all kinds of stuff. Certainly there are limits to, you know, the sizes of the press, size of the line, the size of veneer logs and things like that. But four by eight plywood sheets are made quite a bit larger than that. And they are cut down to the four by eight size for that matter, the five by fives, the five by tens, they're all cut down to that particular size. So as with everything in a manufactured product, if you've got the wherewithal to buy in bulk, you can do all kinds of magic things. Jay then goes on to say that as for the burnt wood, using the Japanese name seems to be more of a designer fad. Man has been burning wood, weapon tips, etc. since we mastered fire, way longer than decorative finishing, for the purposes of hardening and durability. Further, it may have been, quote, finished by animal fats, either unintentionally or otherwise. It's a very good point. Now, one may question, though, I mean, the Japanese have been doing it for thousands of years. So, yeah, you can go back tens of thousands of years and see, you know, people using fire to, to harden um, uh, uh, weapon tips and things like that. But uh, there's no doubt it is most definitely a designer fad at this point. It is a luxury designer finish. And, and actually, um, it, where I work, we are characterizing it as a finish. It is not, you know, a milled uh, uh, service we're offering. It's a finished offering, just like priming and painting or clear coating. It is entirely a finish. And oh my God, is it so in vogue right now to the point where 
Um, you know, we talked about the whole Shishugi bond versus Yakasugi. We're actually seeing both of those terms thrown around, uh, tied with other terms as actual branded products. You know, here's the company that makes Yakasugi branded siding. And it's, it's funny because as we learned in a couple episodes ago, Yakasugi is actually what the Japanese call it. So, oh yeah, with all this stuff, it's all designer fad. Some architect, some interior designer saw it liked it and then someone else saw it and liked it and now it's a a huge huge fad so such is life right Ryan then went on to say that he had actually tried uh, a Shishugi Bon on a project before, and he said he used a small propane blowtorch as well as that larger flamethrower style that you hook up to a propane tank. Uh, man, that thing is like lighting, hand lighting a jet engine. That sounds like fun. Uh, I think the technique looks awesome, but you really have to plan out your project and account for the fact that any small touch-ups you do post-finishing might expose fresh wood and be undesirable, like really undesirable if you think about it. It. Like dark black chard, suddenly the tiniest little bit of lighter as you sanded will stick out like a sore thumb. It's a very good point. Um, another thing you have to think about is some of the, the heavily charred finishes, like the gator finishes, you could actually flake off a whole chip of it. And then you've got this, you know, really, really uh, big piece showing. Now, there are some finishes that will actually go a little bit deeper. The finish is not quite skin deep, but you got to be careful there. You burn it too much and you have a, a very uh, a delicate product left over. Anyway, uh, Ryan goes on to say another huge factor that you mentioned is the rapid expulsion of any moisture in the wood. I found that burning a section then quickly spraying that section down with a water bottle did the best job at reintroducing a base level of moisture back into the wood so that it doesn't change shape too much. And this is something that you don't hear a lot of people talking about. If you are going to be doing a shishugibon on your own project, be very aware of what you're doing. Um, You're creating a potato chip here and you've got to keep the water nearby and that's a really good solution. Just using a spray bottle, um, you burn it, come back with a spray bottle and, and just keep that process alternating back and forth. Another thing you can do is provide some even heating. If you are actually burning the piece and you've got it maybe set up on some risers, maybe six inches off of a reflective surface, like a a bit of sheet metal or something like that, that can reflect heat back, it will kind of bake the underside. Now, it won't char the underside because it's not direct flame. It's it's, um, reflective heat, conductive heat convective heat, I guess is the word I'm looking for, that will heat up the other side and draw the moisture out there. So you can more evenly heat the piece. But now you're getting a little bit more production. If you're just doing this as kind of a one-off project, grab that water bottle and uh, uh, go to town with the mister and the, and the flame all at once and have a fire extinguisher nearby. That should go without saying, right? I haven't said that, but it should go without saying. <laughs> so as we move on to industry news, this is really what is shaping this episode. Uh, I had uh, a couple of people who sent me some articles and I had a couple of people who asked questions that all fall in the same line. So we're going to kind of blur the line between industry submitted, industry news, submitted articles, and some email questions that have been sent in. So first, I want to start with something. This has actually been in the news a fair amount over the last couple of years. Omar actually sent me a link to a New York Times article that talks about um, 
building more wooden buildings, specifically tall wooden buildings. The technology we have with cross-laminated, uh, cross-timber laminations with LVLs to allow us to create wooden beams that, you know, 20, 30, 40 feet long that are structurally sound and have similar properties in building as one would find with steel. Combine that with the fact that there are massive tariffs on steel right now, and it's gotten very, very expensive to be to build steel construction buildings. So now there's this thought of, well, why don't we use wood more? Um, you know, wood is renewable. Wood does actually grow on trees. And, you know, then there's the whole environmental side of things, the carbon sequestration that comes from, you know, uh, the, the carbon is sequestered inside the wood in the buildings that you're building. And ideally, if you are using more wood to build some of these taller five, six story buildings, you're gonna be cutting down more trees. And you may think, well, well, that's bad, right? Taking down more forests. But if we are managing those forests and replanting those trees, then you've got younger trees that are aggressively sequestering carbon and, and pulling it back out of the atmosphere. So it could be you know, a, a big global kind of circle idea. Leaving the environmental aspect out of it, Wood buildings um, have become a lot more popular lately because of some of those managed forests and because of the the actively, or I should say, well-managed forests are making the abundance of timber um, very, very um, obvious. We have a lot more timber for structural, uh, uh, structural construction, structural pieces than we've had in the past. Some of this has been the recession put a slowdown on the building trade and the sawmills were still trying to crank stuff out. But at the same time, there have been some long time good silvicultural practices here in North America that are producing a surplus of material in those construction grade type um, um, species. Now, when you start adding engineered manufactured type products like LVL and, and cross timber laminated, uh, lamination pieces or cross laminated timber, CLT is the official term, those are, are using more, um, more types of trees, um, using less desirable trees that would not have worked for you know a solid wood stud or a solid wood two by something. Now it's it's uh, um, comparable to like chipboard or OSB where you've got you know pulp and chips and things like that. It's not quite the same because you still have long grain strands in these laminated timbers, but you can get away with with thin laminations to make these. So you can stretch the tree a lot further to make a totally different product that is super strong and overcomes the the length engineering issues that steel uh, does for us and you know it's all wood and you can get them from fsc forests so you can qualify for lead points if you're if you're concerned about you know leads gold or platinum in your building structure and things like that there's a lot of pluses to this and we're seeing more and more where these buildings are being done certainly uh, across the globe but a lot more in north america lately to the point now that there is a um, a CLT plant that has opened in uh, Washington State, and there's one that's supposed to be opened up in Maine um, sometime in 2020, I think. I, I could be wrong on that date, but this is something that we need to keep an eye on. Um, we, uh, we, I mean, where I work at, at J. Gibson McElvain, we've actually been seeing some increase for stuff like this. Not quite the same LVL, but certainly using Douglas fir 
cladding in another species um, and then using engineered beams like LVL and cladding it and veneering it in another species. So you've got this super, super long giant, you know, 15 by 15 beam that's 25 feet long, but it looks like Purple Heart because it was veneered in Purple Heart. Um, and that's something that, that we're going to see more and more because it looks cool. Um, it in many ways can be cheaper than the steel and in many ways can can um, meet the environmental concerns to make it a very viable product. So it's, it's something to think about. What's interesting about this New York Times article is the author talked a lot about uh, the case studies of where this is being used, um, how long it's been around. This is certainly not a new idea. I remember on Wood Talk a long time ago, I actually talked about um, some researchers in the University of Maryland who were talking about building wooden skyscrapers. And um, another instance where uh, researchers in the University of Maryland as well had also found a way to make see-through wood. So essentially could make glass wood where they removed all of the all the lignin and you have this transparent wood that could be used for windows and greater light which again goes into the whole Leeds green building idea so there's a lot being done with wood people are recognizing how renewable how sustainable how environmentally friendly wood is and it's making a big big comeback in more than just residential stick frame construction. So the author here, I, I joke because I can I can hear like I can hear the conversation. Um, the New York Times author submits this to his editor, and the editor's like, "You can't write about using more wood in buildings. People are going to scream deforestation." So the author went back to his desk and quickly did some research, pulled some stuff together, and like the whole second half of this article is talking about how well managed forests actually will sequester more carbon um, because of the fact that as a tree is growing, it's pulling in more carbon. When a tree gets fully mature and you've got a lot of heartwood, there's not as much carbon being sequestered. So there was a lot of talk of if we're going through this well-managed forest idea where we're not expecting to have a forest that's that's standing for 40, 50, 100 years, it's more of a 10 to 20 year cycle where um, you, you are planting these trees and either you are managing them as a hardwood forest and you're taking down cedar trees or um, feeder trees, not cedar trees, um, or you're, you're managing as a softwood forest where the best solution there is to clear cut because of the way softwoods like to grow. You let them grow for 10, 15 years, you clear cut the thing and you start over and you're sequestering all that carbon from the atmosphere while that stand of trees is growing. You cut them down, you plant more and you sequester more carbon as it continues to grow again. So there's some real environmental impacts in a positive way on well-managed forests. And the thought is that if we had a lot more demand for wood in more than just residential stick frame, we would have a lot more reason to have well-managed forests, which in the turn could be a boon for the environment. So whether or not, you know, all of that, all that math works out and it all comes together, certainly when you look at each individual element in there, when you look at the environmental studies on well-managed forests, and when you look at the idea of using wood for making taller buildings, it all seems like a pretty good idea. And it's, it's something particularly interesting worth looking at and paying attention to in the coming years. So this led me to um, an article that was submitted by a, a couple people and actually came across my desk at work uh, independently. Uh, and it, you find it in, in a couple of different places. I'm going to actually look at the article in Scientific American. But it was a, a study that was done in was it Germany. No, uh, uh, Zurich in Switzerland. And it, um, it was done by a group that is looking at solutions to global warming, natural biological solutions to global warming. 
And they discovered, this is going to sound kind of, you know, head slap obvious at first, but they discovered if we planted more trees, it would be good for the environment. (laughs) At face value, it's like, duh, yeah. But they went one step further and they figured out how many more trees we need to plant and where we should plant them. So they figured out that if we planted just under a billion hectares, 0.9 billion hectares of forest, when that forest grew up, it would sequester enough carbon from the atmosphere to offset all of the carbon put into the atmosphere by man since the Industrial Revolution. Basically, all of the problems would be fixed by a billion hectares of forest. It's like, okay, well, you got a billion hectares of forest? Well, guess what? We do. Um, Oh, I'm trying to find the number here. Um, I want to say 3.64 billion hectares are available, or is it 6.34? Oh, I don't know. It's more than twice the amount we need. I can I can say that. And, and I apologize. I don't have the number right in front of me. I'm scrolling through this article right now and I, it's not immediately jumping out at me. But the gist of the story is there is a lot more available land than what we actually need. And available is defined as, you know, they didn't say, okay, well, you're going to tear down Philadelphia. Sorry, Philadelphia, you're gone now. You're going to be forced. No, 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 no. You, you can't do that. What they said is it would be um, areas that wouldn't affect cities or wouldn't affect daily human life. In other words, land that was already open and they started looking at the map and there's huge swaths of it in, in, um, like the boreal forest area of Siberia, there's something like 73% of that space could actually be taken up from Siberia. 63% of that could actually be done in North America and over up in the Canadian Shield. So there, the, and there's there's actually space, you know, in South America as well. There's quite a bit of room that wouldn't affect something already there. You know, you're not going to tear something down or, or in order to plant these trees. Moreover, environmentally, it would support it. So certainly there's lots of open land in the Sahara and sub-Sahara, but you know, these trees aren't going to grow there. So they looked at all of that and figured out, you know, it's not like this is a pipe dream. This is something that could happen. Now, somebody's got to plant a billion hectares of forest, but if you did, the carbon issues could be gone. So this backs up kind of what we're talking about in the previous issue of using um, wood to build more buildings. Because if we had more well-managed forests, we would maybe, maybe, and this is where things get political and controversial, maybe we could start talking about reversing some of the global warming stuff that's going on. I'm going to go totally editorial and agnostic here and say, if you believe in global warming. If you don't believe in global warming, then you're laughing at me at this point. I don't want to open that can of worms right now. This is a lumber podcast. But it's kind of encouraging when I realize a billion hectares is a lot. But when you think about what's available, moreover, and I think that where this study in Zurich goes a little not far enough is they just talk about planting a bunch of forests. Where I think that could go wrong is planting a bunch of forests and then wrapping a velvet rope around it and saying, okay, this forest is off limits to everything. If it were a managed forest, and when I say managed, as I said before, I'm not just talking about clear-cutting forests. I'm talking about land that could be public recreation, but it also could be harvested from time to time. And harvesting doesn't always mean clear-cutting. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it's it's the best thing for that particular land. But when you look at the overabundance of horrible forest fires we've had from forests that are not being managed anymore, and that's how Mother Nature 
fixes overforestation and, and a huge amounts of overgrowth and lots of really, really old trees that are dry and, and, and turning to tender. It burns it down. So if you have a managed forest and you're harvesting out the older trees and you're dealing with the undergrowth and you're, you're pruning the trees for, for a specific purpose, say you're, you're growing a hardwood for a lumber forest. So you're going to be pruning those, that undergrowth to try to get rid of the knots and things in the board. And you're going to end up with a, a much less fire risk forest that its full intention is parts of it or all of it are to be cut down and replanted. And again, every time you replant something and that tree is growing, it's sucking more carbon out of the atmosphere. And and then when that log is turned into boards, that carbon is still locked up inside and you're using it for something else and you're pulling more and more out of the atmosphere. So again, combine these two stories together and talk about, we need more forests, another billion hectares of forest. Um, and we need more lumber because we're going to be building more stuff out of wood. We have the ability to build things we never built before, i.e. taller buildings, more commercial buildings out of wood. So we're going to need more wood. So two and two together, plant more forests, manage forests for even better carbon sequestration equals a lot more material to build with. So yay, right? Kind of interesting to, to have all of these stories come across my desk all at the same time. Now, that leads me to the idea that, you know, why, why are uh, laminated timbers and LVL, why are they even being looked at in the first place? Why are they gaining popularity? Well, as I said, steel has become very, very expensive because of tariffs put on it. Well, it's not all shiny happy in the wood world as well. Um, Mike actually emailed me and said, I'm seeing a lot of bad news here in British Columbia about mill closures and production curtailments the past few weeks. I know you've talked before about tariffs and whatnot affecting softwood prices because most of the softwood in North America comes from Canada. Wondering what effect this will have on the prices. It can't be a good thing. Well, Mike, here's another can of worms to open. Tariffs in general. First, we'll talk about softwood tariffs. He's right. All of these these LVL products and, and these laminated timbers, most of them are being manufactured in Canada. That's why I specifically brought up the point that they've opened a plant in Washington and now are planning to open one in Maine. That will try to help control the cost because the stuff that we're using now is coming from Canada and there are tariffs being put on it, making it more expensive. So, And I don't know the, the actual cost at this point now. Um, I, you know, but it's going to close that, that gap over how expensive steel has become. So you can look at it and say, I'm saving a whole lot of money using timber to build this building, but I've got to re-educate myself as an engineer, as an architect on what to do now that I'm using wood or eh, the price gap isn't that big of a deal with steel. I'm going to stick with steel. Yes, it's going to be more expensive, but I don't have to like retool, uh, re-educate myself on how to do things. And the construction trade is notoriously stubborn. If they find something that works, they're going to stick to it. And rightfully so, right? We're all that way. You find something that works, especially if there's other people counting on you and there's building codes and there's lives at stake because the building could fall over if you don't know what you're doing. You stick with what you know. You stick with what works. So, you know, you're going to drag people kicking and screaming into this wood um, commercial building market unless there is a really, really strong reason for that. And right now, that strong reason is it's much cheaper than steel. But is it? 
because if it's being made in Canada and the tariffs being imposed on Canadian softwoods, in some instances, upwards of 30% can be offsetting that cost savings. And it's it, that is a real concern. And moreover, there's a lot of mills in Canada, just like Mike says, who are not handling it well, and they're closing up because they, they can't make a profit anymore. The long term of this, and we saw this about eight years ago, more and more of these sawmills shut down, which means there's less and less material being produced. And I want to say it was probably 2011 we had a massive shortage on just some some of the regular domestics the the poplars and red oaks and things like that because the mills weren't able to make any money um, they were losing money hand over foot and mills that had been in business for hundreds of years closed down and large producers of you know lar- large sawyers of domestic trees to make into hardwood and and to make into softwood construction material and suddenly we saw the net surplus that normally in poplar sits or, or red oak rather sits at around 11 billion board feet that net, net surplus dropped below 6 billion board feet those numbers are huge, right? But when you think about the global demand and suddenly it's almost cut in half, or excuse me, the global supply is almost cut in half. At the same time, the construction trade and the recession started to turn around and the construction industry started to pick up, but we had half the supply that was left and there was a real crisis when suddenly cheap lumber like poplar and red oak, suddenly the prices started skyrocketing because there wasn't there wasn't enough supply to meet the sudden demand. Now, since then, we've had quite a few mills that have reopened. We've had mills that have expanded their capabilities and we've kind of picked up that, that near inventory. But this is a butterfly effect, right? And as we're seeing these softwood mills in Canada starting to close down, what is this going to mean for us long term? And if the whole idea of, of, of LVLs and larger buildings with engineered timbers takes off and there's a greater demand for it, yet there's a lot less mills in Canada producing it, you can see what happens. Suddenly that product cost is going to go through the roof and people are going to ditch the idea and go back to steel. Maybe they won't. You know, it's hard to say. I'm certainly no uh, uh, economist, but one thing I've learned in working in the lumber industry is it is such a global thing to think about. You know, that butterfly effect is so huge because, you know, trees are grown all over the world and you've got that long time span to produce a product. You know, you got to grow the tree and you got to saw it and you've got to transport it across the globe sometimes and do all the drawing or drying. So that incredible lead time before you have a product that's ready to sell, so much can affect that. Sociopolitical, environmental can change all of that. It's something to, to really think about. So expanding upon that tariff idea, I got a couple people who pointed me to um, a Wall Street Journal article about the kind of lumber mill crisis that's going on because as the U.S. has imposed tariffs um, on other countries, imposed tariffs on China, imposed tariffs on Canada. China is now striking back and imposing 25, 30% tariffs on import, U.S. Um, imported lumber into China. So now what we're seeing is a drop of uh, U.S. exported lumber to China has dropped over 40% in the last year. And you've got large companies, huge companies that are seeing a massive, massive hit to their bottom line. And, you know, they have really been relying heavily on China because China has been buying lumber like crazy. The slowdown of the Chinese economy, plus those additional tariffs, 40% reduction is a huge deal. So now the same thing's happening and we're seeing sawmills closing their doors. 
We're seeing exporters closing the doors. We're seeing sawmills that have been around for several hundred years, laying off more than half their staff, shutting down facilities left and right. And you know, that's terrible, right? I mean, it's terrible to see the loss of jobs. It's terrible to see those companies not doing well, but let's go back to that long-term thinking. If half of their staff is gone, if they've shut down half of their facilities, that means at least half of their production is gone as well. So as demand continues to increase, but the supply is not there, you're going to see a real issue in, in all of this. These tariffs are affecting a lot of people. The entire lumber industry is really, really hurting under this, um, which is always interesting because tariffs are like meant to spark local growth, you know, to, to support U.S. companies or to support Chinese companies in the interest of the Chinese government. And it just ends up hurting everybody. I don't really have a, a stance politically on this because I'm just not well informed enough to know all the other economics that go around behind it. But day in and day out and talking to sawmill owners, customers that we've worked with for decades, they're hurting um, because of this. And it's really something that we've got to look out for as the, the tariff war keeps going. Well, somebody in that Wall Street Journal article said it well. Um, he said, uh, we feel like we're stuck in a much larger chess match. You know, there's these these global powers that are, you know, bickering with one another, essentially, and levying tariffs on one another. And the guys down in the trenches whose products are being affected by that uh, really are just hurting and really have no say on things. So that's particularly scary. And it's something that um, you're going to kind of pay close attention to. So kind of in another realm, but a little related, Adam wrote in and said that there are articles suggesting that the non-invasive species of the empress tree, um, Palawina, Kiri, however you want to put it, um, the empress trees, uh, they are the best species for carbon sequestration. They have a 10-year harvesting and respawning cycle. So, it doesn't seem like this particular species, the empress tree specifically, if you've ever seen it, it's got um, a pink flower and the ends of the branches kind of turn up and it presents this almost cone-shaped flower. It's a very ornamental looking tree. Anybody in the East Coast and Mid-Atlantic regions ever been to Longwood Gardens? They're covered with empress trees. Drive up and down 95 corridor along the East Coast and you're going to see empress trees everywhere. Um, so it, it, it's not a particularly good tree for hardwood use, but it's really, really good for carbon sequestration. So he wonders what my opinion on the carbon capture of using empress trees. Well, at face value, and this goes back to what I'm talking about with well-managed forests, at face value, it seems like a good idea, right? I mean, Paloena grows really, really fast. That's why the density is so low. Um, so as it grows fast, it's sucking carbon in left and right, which explains why it's it's the it's qualified the best. Now, I don't know what his source is for saying the best, but um, you know that's why it's so good at it because it grows super fast. It's one of the other reasons that softwoods are good at carbon sequestration because they grow really fast. But he's talking about a ten-year harvesting and respawning cycle. If it's not being used for hardwood, what's it being harvested for? Is it just being chipped and turned into mulch? You know, one has to ask before you can say, is this a good option for carbon sequestration? What is it actually being harvested for? And will that locked up carbon just be released somewhere else? You know, if it's being harvested and turned into pellets for wood stoves, guess what happens when you burn pellets? <laughs> it releases all that carbon back into the atmosphere. So you have to ask yourself, is, is the shorter harvest and respawn cycle, is that offset by what it could be used for? If it's not good for to be used as a hardwood or not good to be used for a building material or something long term, you have to question that. 
The key here, regardless of the species, is that the forest is being managed appropriately. And you're not just leaving it alone and letting it grow and saying, that's off limits. You can't touch it because it's carbon sequestering right now. Because unmanaged forests get out of control and unmanaged forests catch on fire. Or unmanaged forests produce no investment, produce no revenue. And over time, say, you know, in a perfect world, say we get a handle on this whole climate change thing. Ah, we got that covered. No big deal. And 50, 60, 100 years from now, somebody's like, all right, that's not a big deal anymore. I'm going to go cut down that forest and put a strip mall there or whatever the, the 100 years in the future version of a strip mall is. And we start repeating history because we got so many trees now, we don't have any environmental problems. We're going to start cutting them down again. So, that you could end up repeating the cycle all over again. But if you have a well-managed forest, whether it's it's government land that's leased out to, to um, lumber companies or it's owned by a private lumber company, if that is your land that's producing your product, you're going to take care of that land. You're going to manage it and make sure that it doesn't burn down. You're going to make sure that it's a healthy forest that's going to produce the best product for you because it's, it's an investment for you. And it's your bottom line. It's producing your product, which is your revenue. If you just plant a forest and say, don't touch it, nobody has any vested interest to take care of it. Granted, if we're all noble, we all have a vested interest. It's care for our planet, right? That's nice. Everybody smile and say cheese for the camera. It doesn't work that way. I'm sorry, folks. And this is this is the problem we face in a lot of countries around the world who, you know, they're just trying to stay alive. They're trying to put food on the table. They're trying to not die of starvation. So here's a tree over here that we just saw some gringo buy for enough money that could feed my family for the next month. What would you do? You know, and you got to think about this stuff. Unless that tree has value, somebody's going to find a way to, to generate value. And that's why the number one cause of deforestation is not the lumber industry, but the cattle industry. Because, oh, that tree is banned, that species is banned, that forest can no longer be cut down for trees, you can't log there anymore. All right, well, as the landowner, I'm going to sell it to this cattle rancher over here because he's going to give me a good price for it. He's going to cut down those trees and he's going to have pasture land for his cows. So again, the best way to help the environment, frankly, is to continue to use wood, to continue to buy wood, because the more we buy wood, the more demand for it, the more reason to take care of that investment, to continue to manufacture, if you will, lumber um, to, to meet that demand. So it's, it's again, butterfly effect, right? It all comes back to it. So are, are Palowina empress trees a good idea? Maybe. It all depends on what that product is you're using it for. If you're just planting it and leaving it alone, I don't think it's a good idea. I don't care how good and how fast it sequesters carbon. Don't think it's necessarily a very good idea. So let's uh, um, let's look at totally different direction. Let's get away from the politics. Um, Paul sent me a question. He said, I've seen a local urban miller that is pushing, quote, thermally modified lumber. Is this just lumber that was in the kiln too long? Or is this a product that has actually some merits to it? So thermally modified lumber, uh, formally that's known as torrefied wood. The torrefaction process is what, what it's called when you actually bake or thermally modify lumber. Um, Woodworkers out there, um, hand tool users are going to be familiar with uh, Lee Valley Veritas and their chisels that have baked maple handles. That's the torrefied wood that we're talking about. The torrefaction process, at its base value, it's putting wood in an oven 
raising that temperature up above 350 degrees Fahrenheit, 180 C, and removing the oxygen. Because you, you turn the heat up that much, you could ignite the wood and burn it. So if you pull the oxygen out of the chamber, you're not going to burn it. And what happens is you bake that lumber and you actually cook out the, the extractives, the, the resins and things like that, and you really chemically modify the structure. In many ways, it's almost like creating a crystalline lattice. Instead of the, the typical arrangement of wood fibers, you're creating this crystalline structure. And, and really, I should be putting crystalline in air quotes because it's not quite the same. I took mineralogy. In fact, I was mineralogist of the year. <laughs> I got an award for that way back in 1900 or something. So um, it's not definitely a crystal lattice, but you could kind of, you know, close one eye, have seven shots and compare it to a crystal lattice. The idea is that it chemically modifies the wood structure so that the wood becomes hyperstable. It still moves very little, but it also becomes more of an isotropic material instead of the anisotropic material of wood where it moves more in the tangential direction than it does in the radial direction. It moves isometrically kind of the same in all directions, but really that's even almost negligible because it moves so very little. So it's a very stable product. It is a harder product. It is also a weather resistant, if not weatherproof product. Um, Talk about kiln drying wood. I've talked about this in the past where once you harden those fibers, it sheds water or it won't absorb water quite as fast using the analogy of the dry creek bed where the water just shoots down the dry creek bed and it doesn't soak into the ground because the, the earth is, is baked and hard and it's not going to absorb that water. Thermally modified wood takes it to the extreme where it just doesn't soak in anything. Um, if you've ever burnished the surface of wood and then tried to apply finish like a penetrating oil into it, and you've seen that the oil doesn't soak into the area that's been burnished, it's the same idea to some effect. I mean, burnishing is really caused by friction, right? Friction and pressure. So thermally modified lumber, torrified lumber at its base is cranking the heat up and removing the oxygen. Now, over time, there's been quite a few different processes that have been patented and every company seems to have their own technology, their own way of doing this. And of course, they all say we do it the best. Um, some of it is the introduction of steam to control the process, very much like a steam kiln does to kind of control the environment. So I think like if you go to a Wikipedia article on, on torrified wood, I think you're going to find six or seven different processes that are that are laid out and how they do what they do. But they all end up with the same end result of a very stable, harder weather, you know, resistant exterior type wood. This works for a lot of different products. And the process you choose may have a lot to do with what product you're using. You're using softwood or using hardwood. There's a particular torrified process that works really well for denser hardwoods. And there's one that works for more of the less dense hardwoods like poplar and cherry. But you can use, you can make torrified maple. You can make torrified oak. And those are certainly a lot more dense than, than poplar and cherry but you also can torrify softwoods. You, the problem with softwoods is they don't have a pore structure, they have that tracheate structure, and if you're not careful, they can turn to a sloppy, gooey, pulpy mess. So it requires a different torrified process to do it. It's, it's an interesting process. We're seeing it pop up more and more, and what you're seeing it used mostly is the exterior um, 
door and window, exterior door and window. Well, you're going to have interior doors. I suppose you can have interior windows as well, but the exterior companies making doors and windows that need something that's weather resistant and hyper stable. Um, now, Torrified wood certainly becomes a lot more expensive. So it becomes more of a luxury product. And when you find, you know, thermal wood products and things like that, certainly there's a price tag that goes with it. But you're talking about a very, very durable product that's going to last you a very, very long time and is very dimensionally stable. So it's it's an interesting product. It's been around a while. It's certainly nothing new. Um, like I said, the construction trade is very stubborn. Uh, we uh, at McIlvain have kind of played with the idea and looked at it um, and kind of walked away from it because there's other companies that already kind of have it in the bag. And if we had a client that wanted it, we would essentially contact them and work through companies that kind of know what they're doing with it. There's just not a huge enough market to, to say, let's get into that. So yeah, take a look at it. You're going to see it pop up more and more to local lumber yards as well. So I get a lot of questions. Um, maybe it's, it's, it's old wood talk listeners that just miss Matt Cremona <laughs> because I get a lot of questions about people who have a, a, a chainsaw mill or a bandsaw mill or have bought some land and are thinking about harvesting their trees. And they start coming to me when they realize that, hey, we have a lot of trees here and I've now sawn up a bunch of these trees and I don't need any more lumber. So can I start selling it? So I did get a, I've gotten a few emails over time and I just wanted to address a couple of them. Uh, Elliot wrote in and said that uh, I've bought several acres of forest onto which I'll be building uh, my dream home. Being influenced by Macromona, see, there we go, I would like to to take the, quote, nice trees that have to be felled for the house site and turn them into lumber. I can see for sure walnut, oak, and other hardwoods there, maybe a dozen or two dozen, that, that must go to make room for the house. How would we approach this? Do we hire Matt to haul his bandsaw mail to us a thousand miles or so? Um, Or are there folks like Matt Cremona locally who would come and do this? Do we have to ship the logs to a mill? I'm told there is a nice mill one state over, but is this even a pipe dream? So here's somebody that has land, has trees that are going to be felled. There's a reason to fell the trees. So that's the first thing. If you own forest, just because you own the forest doesn't mean you need to go cut down the trees, right? You know, we love our trees. We love the shade. We love the forest and all the furry creatures that live in them. Let's not, just not cut it down for the sake of cutting it down, you know? But these trees have got to come down in order to make um, room for a house. So, you know... How many trees? If you're talking two dozen trees, that's a lot of lumber. So the first thing you have to ask yourself is, yes, there are there are people that have mobile sawmills. Um, I've always been told that you can have some good luck going to woodmiser.com because they have a, um, a woodmiser owner directory. When you buy a woodmiser, you register it and you end up in the directory. So you can look up by zip code and find owners of woodmisers in your neighborhood. And not all woodmisers are mobile, but a lot of them are. Some of them can be put on a trailer. Some of them are built into to a trailer. So the idea is that they show up, they pull into your backyard, they pull onto your land, they cut down the trees. Uh, some of them may cut down the trees. Some of them may require the trees already to be down. That would just be, you would have to talk to those guys to find out. But most definitely, there are mobile sawmills. There are also companies who will pick up the log and take it to a mill. 
certainly there's going to be more expense with that because of the transportation. They've got to have, you know, a crane and all that stuff. But th- this is, is absolutely possible. I mean, even if it's just going to the next mill over, um, if there is a sawmill, they have some way to move logs, obviously. So they will probably have a service that will they will come and pick up the log. You just have to ask. Obviously, everything comes with a price, right? So you have to look at a couple of different solutions to figure out how to do that. But I know lots of people who have had trees on their property felled and milled into lumber. But you also have to ask yourself, what am I going to do with this lumber? You know, not what furniture am I going to build with it? But when I have all of these turned into boards, they're going to need to be stacked and stickered and and covered to dry for some time. Um, So you've got to make sure you've got a place for that. And, you know, watch any of Matt's videos on his YouTube channel. It needs to be a nice level spot. Otherwise, all your lumber is going to dry crooked. It needs to be a spot that can stay there for quite some time. And you've got to be aware of things like mold and boring insects and, and pay attention to all that stuff. So it's not just something where, you know, like a, a, a Ronco rotisserie, where you just set it and forget it. You've got to, you got to pay attention to this stuff and monitor the wood and make sure that it's not being infested by something and make sure that it's drying appropriately. And when it is dry, what are you going to do with it? Do you have a lumber shed that you can move it out of the elements that you can you can set it aside? You know, there, there's a lot to, to think about here, especially in an instance where you're going to be cutting down possibly two dozen trees all at the same time. So what I would recommend is certainly you want to do your research to find somebody that actually can help you saw it into boards. But what I recommend is how many logs do you want to saw right now? Because you go to any sawmill and the first thing you'll see is the log yard, just stacks and stacks of logs just hanging out in the back of the, of the property. And many of them have been there for a long, long time. A log will be okay by itself. Um, it's not going to, to rot away. I mean, certainly it will, but it takes a very, very long time while the bark's still on the log. So a log can sit in log form for quite some time, as long as you don't mind that you've got a pile of logs sitting over there. You do have to be a little cognizant of boring insects and things, but if the tree was felled in the winter, the sap won't be rising, so it's not going to be quite as sweet and tasty for the bugs, and you should be okay leaving it in log form for a while. Come and seal those ends. Use a, a latex paint, or you know, if you want to get fancy, use an anchor seal wax-based product to seal the ends of the logs, and just leave them until you need them and then saw the logs as you need them. That will kind of control the sheer volume of boards you've got stacked and stickered and and flowing into your shop. So maybe it's three, four logs, but you also may be surprised just how little board you get out of a log. A lot of people will say 50 to 60% of that log ends up as waste. So, you know, 24 trees is like, wow, that's a lot of lumber. Well, it may end up being half of the lumber that you think it will. So there's a lot to think about here, but most definitely there is, it is not a pipe dream. There's no reason why it couldn't work. The other thing you have to think about is you will need some firewood. So that 40 to 50% of waste, that's probably going to make some really nice firewood for you. So good luck with that, Elliot. Now on a different direction, Bo wrote in and says that I live in South Florida where I mill a lot of exotic species that actually grow locally in our tropical climate. Cuban mahogany, Indian rosewood, monkey pot, etc. They're all in in my backyard. And and personally, I hear about this all the time. I have people calling me all the time saying, I have a Cuban mahogany tree. Do you want to buy it? Um, so I know this is this is both saying I know that it's tricky with exotic species covered under cites, but this is all salvaged from planted ornamental trees. I'm not sure if there's a demand for Cuban mahogany or if I could even sell it um, because of the cites regulation. 
So let's look about this. CITES refers to import and export. If the tree was harvested in the U.S. and you're selling it in the U.S., there is no CITES involved whatsoever. It is not illegal to fell and saw into boards a Cuban mahogany tree that grew in the U.S. and is being sold in the U.S. If you wanted to sell those Cuban mahogany boards south of the border to Cuba or to one of the Caribbean islands, that's where you have a problem. Now it becomes an export. And now you're exporting a CITES, in the instance of Cuban mahogany, a CITES Appendix 1 species, and you will not pass go and go straight to jail on that one. So um, it's weird about that, right? Because it seems like a loophole. Um, but really, you have to think about this. He's right. The trees growing in that small area of Florida where it's a good climate for these tropical trees, they are all, are, they are all ornamental yard trees. There's not groves and stands of, of, of forest here. It's one or two trees in somebody's yard. So by all means, um, if that tree is coming down, you've been contracted to take that tree down, I would say go cut it down because, oh, I got a Cuban mahogany tree. I gotta, I'm going to retire on that. You actually don't make that much money off logs. Think about the cost of, of a genuine mahogany board. can be expensive, right? Four quarter genuine mahogany, six to eight inch wide. Depending on where you are, could be six to eight dollars a board foot or more. Track that back to how many board feet do you get out of that log, how much effort went into drying it, went into sawing it, went into transporting it. Suddenly the cost per board foot in a log is down to like pennies. So, you know, how many board feet are in that log? Maybe 50 board feet times three cents a board foot. It's like, oh man, there goes my retirement, man. I was going to retire on that Cuban mahogany log. So it doesn't quite work that way. They're not lottery tickets, folks. Um, Or maybe they are lottery tickets because half the lottery tickets you scratch off don't win, right? So, you know, you, you don't want to just cut it down because it's valuable. But, you know, in the in the urban logging tree service type world, you're going to see these rosewoods and mahoganies coming down in the tropical climates of Florida. I absolutely think you should saw them for boards. And I absolutely think there is a market for them. It's into the hobbyist market. Go on eBay and look at lumber on eBay and you will find lots of instances of, of exotic woods being sold. I remember when I first got started in wood turning and I was looking for weird species, I bought all my stuff on eBay. Now, this was 12, 15 years ago, maybe. So things times have changed, certainly in eBay, but there are certainly markets for it. You also will find small retail lumber yards that sell this type of stuff who would probably be very interested in buying it from you. They might even buy the log from you, but that's probably what they'll try to do because they're trying to save money by doing the sawing themselves. But Bo, there is absolutely a market for Cuban mahogany. There's absolutely a market for the rosewoods. It's not a large commercial market, um, but you don't have a large commercial volume of trees that you're dealing with. So I absolutely would do it. I would reach out to your local woodworking guilds. I would reach out to um, any of the local retail lumber yards and say, this is what I got. Are you interested? So yeah, definitely go for it. So there we go, folks. That's another episode in the bag. Kind of a scattered one, a little bit of an editorial one. Um, There's a lot more information we can talk about, about uh, proper forestry practices and how tariffs are affecting a lot of things. But the key that I want you to take away from this is the political, the economic, the environmental, the sociological, all of those things come together and they all interact with one another and affect the cost of our lumber and affect our environment. 
And it's all stuff that you need to think about as a user of wood, as a lover of trees and a lover of shade and a citizen of this planet. It's all important to think about. But I think, and I know that I'm biased because I work for a lumber company and this is a lumber podcast. I think the more wood we use, the happier we're all going to be and the better the environment's going to be on the planet. Maybe that's a controversial thing, but I firmly believe in that report that says if we plant more trees, we could fix global warming. And you know what? The science supports it. So go plant a tree, manage that tree, and then plant another one when you cut it down. (laughs) Go buy some wood, everybody. We'll see you on the next episode.